Before we start the show, I wanted to say thanks for listening. We want to bring you the best show we can, and sometimes it takes us a week or two to cut, edit, and present you something polished. But if you're the kind of person who wants to hear the long version with no frills and wants it as soon as possible, we're now putting our Ready Player 2 episode reviews on Patreon. Pay as much as you think is fair and get access to uncut episodes just hours after we record it. Join our community of gunters at patreon.com forward slash get to the good part, no spaces. Now, on to the show. This is Aaron from the show. First of all, thank you for listening. Once you finish listening to this episode, do us a solid. Go ahead and give us a rating and write a review of the show. This lets us know that we're doing a good job and helps other people find us. And speaking of other people, if you know someone who might enjoy the show, we would love it if you told them about it. We can be found at gttgp.com. There's tons of stuff on there. You can learn more about us. There's an episode guide. And of course, you can find our social media pages, where we love geeking out with our listeners. Now, let's get to the good part. Welcome back to Get to the Good Part. This is Chris. And this is Aaron. And we are circling around chapter 0003. This chapter didn't have nearly as much technical stuff as the last one, not nearly as many references that at least that I stumbled across. There were a few. But this really dives even deeper into the psyche of Parzival. Oh, yeah. And where his relationship is. And his relationship not only with H and Artie, but also his relationship with the business. But there were some elements in, in rereading the chapter that stuck out as red flags. But I don't want to jump to those red flags just yet. So could you summarize us into the beginning here? So the chapter starts with Parzival logging back into the Oasis on his O&I. And he's back on his stronghold on Falco, which is, you know, that's a welcome place for us fans of Ready Player One. He's there for the reason you would expect. He's been going back there to get back in the mindset that he was when he was full-time gunting and trying to figure out the seven shards riddle. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a point of comfort. It takes him back in history. And it makes a lot of sense. You know, as he put it, that's where he solved one of the major riddles of the original Easter egg hunt. It has thus far failed to reap any benefits for him for the shards riddle. Mm -hmm. But I understand, you know, you, you, you want to go back to a comforting place to puts you in the mindset, you know, that's a very parsable thing to do. The thing there is that the nostalgia just isn't going to do anything for him because nostalgia takes you back to a point of time wherein the place may have helped you, but the place helped you because it was active, it was current, it was what you were doing in the moment. Going back in time just takes you back to that place where you solved old problems. It doesn't take you forward to a place where you can solve new ones. However, it was cool to see that this part of the story, this familiar place, was in there. The chapter itself is peppered with reasons for why Parzival hasn't grown up. Yeah. Ugh. And Ugh. and through the chapter, because as we, as we move into the chapter, and I don't want to go too far, but he reflects on his friends that he rarely sees now, and maybe only if he asks them. But he reflects on how their lives have changed, how H 
has changed her avatar, which was originally identified as a male, to her, to who she is. And she had her name officially changed. Not just male, a white male. Yeah. That all of them, except for Parzival, have changed in some ways, and probably in the ways that count. Because H still goes out and does a little PvP. H still gets online and, and likes the, the fans and whatnot. I mean, there's there's still a lot of old habits, if you will, but they've changed, like they've grown, and they've brought yeah. maybe some of the better parts of themselves forward. Even later in the chapter, we talk about how Artie has reflected her wine blemish on her avatar. So she's embraced mm-hmm. that part of herself that just shows that she's grown. And, and all of the characters have grown in, in some sense— even Daito's gotten married and is going to have a kid. Yeah, good for him. It's interesting how the other members of the High Five who have changed, they've grown, they're different people than they were when they were knee-deep in the contest, and now they've all made their avatars look more like themselves, if not exactly like themselves. Mm-hmm. And Parzival is still faking it. Yeah, his avatar hasn't changed, really. And he's still using an idealized version of himself. And I think, you know, kind of like what you had said before, th- this chapter is a great window into his psyche. You get a little bit of that inner dialogue that we used to see in the first book. And he knows he's doing things that he shouldn't be doing, saying things that he shouldn't. In his head, he knows that he's wrong, she's right. It, it's, a very, it's a very telling chapter to hear how well everybody else is doing, but he, who should, you know, but we would all love to have been him at the end of the first book. Sure. Winning this contest, inheriting this amazing company with this amazing product, and his life sucks. You want to be anybody but him in this book. Oh my God. He, I mean, yeah, he's, you love to hate him at this point. Yeah, and, and you feel bad for him. He becomes he goes from being the protagonist to almost his own antagonist. Yeah. He he is his worst enemy. He's not growing. He's not changing. He's reflecting back into his own past. Not just the eighties and the nineties and the late seventies, but he's now he's reflecting more into his own past to find inspiration. And that's not what inspired him when he was inspired. And uh, I suspect that as we move forward in the chapter, this is going to be uh, a more emphasized point. But definitely in this chapter, there were a number of things that Ernest Klein wrote about that I thought w- whenever an author spends a good chunk of time on something, it, it places a certain degree of importance, either paint the canvas of a certain attitude, certain relationships, or to set the scene for rationalizing actions that are going to happen in the future. And and I think there are some moments here that feel like a a preface to something important that's going to happen. So do you mind if I expand on that, or do you want to hit some tones beforehand? Do you want to go through this more linearly, or do you want to just get into the good stuff? Let's get into the good stuff, and if, if we have to kind of refer back to other points, we can. Because I feel that this is just a bit of a blur. I even reread it, not but like a half hour ago. And, and really what we're talking about is just 
him coming in and going into what would be a typical day at the office with a conference of the high five minus one. But what's subtly put into this, I think, is that the things that kind of popped out for me, because otherwise it's relatively, I don't want to say a boring chapter, but kind of depressing. Yeah, it's depressing, but it's kind of like, almost feels like a business as usual. It's just kind of like, it's just put, it's slowly moving moving things along. Yeah. I mean, admittedly, like the beginning of the book has been a little bit of, it's been a little bit of work to get through. Mm-hmm. Especially like, you know, rereading it to prep. It's just been like, okay, okay, let's go, let's go, let's go. Because it does take a little while to ramp up. And it's getting there. But we haven't quite gotten to the the big event, yeah, so to speak. So one of the things that popped off with me on the second read was Faisal. Faisal Saudi. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but Faisal. And initially it just struck me as somebody who just was professional enough to not let the emotions flying affect him. But on the second read, I kind of had the impression that he just didn't care. Like, like as if we were walking into a room of kids and asking them, what are they going to have for lunch? You don't care what they're fighting about. You don't care what the heck's going on. It's, it's all below you. It's beneath you. But you can keep that smile on your face by disconnecting you in that way. But you know that you need certain things from them in order to do your job. And in this case... Faisal is asking for approval to uh, release an update to the ONI. And I work in software. And uh, Samantha was absolutely right to ask, why are we doing an update? You're saying it's security. And it's funny because there are tons of times where an app on your phone, it'll come up and say, you need to re-download. You need to update your app. And then you'll go and look and like, why do I need to update? Oh, security. Always security. We're always improving security. And she's like, wasn't it security last time? Why is our shit so unsecure? He went into the description there of, you know, well, people do hack it. They find ways around security. We have to pivot to to deal with that security. You know, overclocking. Exactly. As a result, we have security updates. Now, that seems rather harmless of an excuse. But it does. But but what bothered me about it is for a company that historically had been able to make things so rock solid, like the chat rooms and they're like, oh, nobody can get in here, blah, blah, blah. blah. It seems like if they're constantly putting out updates to keep people from overclocking, I think their programmers are slacking a little bit. My question would be, is that really what they're putting updates out for? Because in the same chapter, there is a pretty heavy emphasis on the fact that all the data is stored because the next update is, hey, we brought new data servers online. And then he goes into the description of that because the ONI reads your brain, uh, it was required an enormous amount of space. More space is required. And that when people die, they still keep all of those sorts of recorded brain thoughts. That's stuff that's you know in your brain. The UBS files. Yeah. Well, not just UBS files. Like they're not talking about just UBS files. They, he specifically goes into the fact that you know when you sign up to use the ONI, you are basically handing over access to what's in your brain, and that that's what makes the system so intelligent and you know able to to do all sorts of things. And originally, a few chapters ago, we were talked about, well, gosh, you know, how is it possible to model an apple? But you don't have to 
record eating an apple, your brain already has a mapping of what an apple means to you. And if this can read... If you've had an apple. That's true. Yes, if you've had an apple. But a lot of people have. So it can basically map out those experiences and average them. Sure, if that's a thing. But I mean, I'm I'm very interested in how exactly how the ONI gives you the signals for experiences, especially ones that are based on real experiences but are customized to your actual user experience. Right. Not to get raunchy, but you know, later on in this chapter, it talks about how people are getting sexually transmitted diseases a lot less often because they're just having sex with their oh, ONI. And it's like, well, how do you program that experience as ones and zeros, so to speak? Um, and any other experience, like we talked about this in, you know, earlier on, it's like, how do you program that piece of fruit in the fruit bowl in that initial chapter? when he goes back to Anorak's office, you know, how do you program that? Is it you record somebody eating that same fruit and then, like you said, you know, kind of average it out and extrapolate that experience so that way you know? The way these things are programmed interests me. Like, how is this done? And you know, to the same extent that like, you can they use the example of the surfer you know, who recorded that experience. So you can experience that as a playback. But... Mm-hmm. If you wanted to go virtually surfing with your O&I, there's a lot of different stimuli that create that experience. So you have to program, probably not that far off from like an infinite number of things to to recreate that experience. So I just want to know how they do that. Well, if I had to guess, if I had to guess like... Please. What kind of technology would advance into that, right? Today... Open AI uh, and and types of AI like it, uh, you take a ton of information, and that becomes your model. And this is an oversimplification, by the way. But you take a ton of information, that information becomes a model. And then when you query on that model, it, it comes back with a pattern that it feels would match the kind of response that you're looking for. So, for example, I participated in the AWS Little Racer. And the AWS racer, you go in and you train the model and you basically give it rewards and for doing the right thing, for pointing in the right direction under certain circumstances. For example, or going a certain speed, that might be a little bit of a reward. And then you put it through the paces. And initially it just hits the wall, hits the wall, hits the wall. But the one that doesn't hit the wall and goes a little bit further, that becomes the favorable pattern. And then the next time, it goes a little bit further, and then it hits the wall, hits the wall, and then it goes a little bit further. And as successful patterns and rewards start to feed back into the system, it starts to learn the track. And that's just you know one example of how you can feed a lot of information into a system, and it can kind of create a model, a sort of unified model of everything that can then be fed back to the person. Now, technically speaking, how would you feed it into a person's mind? Hard to say. Like we're not there yet. Not not even close really. But you know, the way that they put it was that he puts it because we had such a huge pool of willing guinea pigs who didn't mind giving us complete access to the contents of their skull as long as we gave them access to our high quality sensor immersive bread and circus simulator. The gist was here that 
the system has access to everything on their mind while they're wearing it, even if they're not recording. Yes. I take that as, you know, that's maybe where they could get those kinds of patterns, that kind of information. But the part that concerns me here, more than that, was when he he went into the fact that they didn't purge people who died. They didn't purge Mm. their minds. That information was still in the system. And that their reason for having it still in the system was that it was good for training the model of the system and was good for marketing and a number of other advantages, much as you might keep statistical information about a person visiting a website. You know, just because a person has never come back again doesn't mean that that wasn't useful when they did it. But it it all feels kind of... Creepy? Shady. Yeah. And and Faisal basically just coming in and saying, hey, sign these papers. Hey, we're going to release an update sign here. And a company that has that much access to people, with the excuse of saying it's being used to model the system better, this kind of harkens back to some of our earlier theories, which is that, that sort of ghost-in-the-machine kind of situation, wherein if we're not just recording what people want to record, but we're really tapping into all of the stuff in a person's brain while they're wearing it, then you are recording that person into the machine. You know, and then what's the next step beyond that? Turning it into its own avatar and letting it loose. You know, a highly intelligent NPC. I feel like there's some setup there. And maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm off. But I feel like maybe there's some setup there. And then Faisal, nonchalantly just coming in saying, hey, sign this. We're doing an update for security. And Samantha very specifically pointing out, hey, wasn't the last one security? Mm. Like, this is an unusually frequent thing that maybe the antagonist within the book is going to come from within. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There was a few things about this firmware update, like you put it, you know, raised some red flags. The part about the end user license agreement, and even though they weren't responsible for these deaths that were happening for people overclocking that necessitated the firmware update, we still wanted to protect the overclockers from themselves. And that, in combination with basically putting a tag on anybody that wasn't using an ONI, so that way you know when you interacted with them that they were using a regular haptic system as opposed to the O&I. Mm-hmm. It just seems like... Does that feel like class separation? Yeah. Like, it feels like everything about that, even though people wanted it, I, th- I feel like there's a good parallel to what's going on today. Right. You know, sort of class that, wars of a sort. Class wars... Censorship is kind of a big thing right now mm-hmm. and allowing people to do what they want with your platform or are you going to limit their ability to do certain things? You're going to shut off a platform because you don't like who's using it. You know, things like, like so much of like what this chapter has about protecting people from themselves and you're, you're speaking more to like a nanny state. Yeah. Yeah. And when a lot of the things that they were doing and saying in this chapter with regards to the company felt icky. If I made a product and I, I recognize that I could do something to keep people from using the product to kill themselves, 
and particularly to use the product in a way that it wasn't designed to do. I would do everything I could, maybe not to protect people from themselves, but to make it a lot harder for them to abuse a system that was already sensitive. Well, see, and and like the way you just put it makes perfect sense. But when they start saying, we wanted to protect them from themselves, it's like, no, I don't want you to protect me from myself. If you want to make it harder for me to abuse your product, that's one thing. But I'll worry about myself. You know what I mean? Well, I don't want every company that I'm deciding to use their product for trying to protect me from myself. I'm big on like, you have personal responsibility to use things like, I can make a choice to use my laptop to do something either perfectly legal and acceptable, or if I want to use it to do things that are illegal, that's my choice. You know what I mean? And I can get caught. Mm-hmm. That's my choice. But at the same time, though, you know, when we talk about using your laptop to break the law, uh, there are security measures in place to help you protect yourself from somebody getting into your laptop. Are you saying that a company imposing a username and password on a laptop as a means to help you protect your data, you feel like that's a, a sort of nanny state technology? I don't see that as the same thing. If I'm using a product I, that is then billing itself as like, you know, this is my thing and I should have a means of feeling secure in using it is one thing. But if I want to use that hardware in a you know, it's to me it feels like this is GSS saying, I don't think I want you going to that website. I don't think I want you reading this article. It's starting to feel like GSS is turning into IOI. If if GSS or any business doesn't take steps to protect the users. You're not just protecting users from themselves. That might be one way to look at it, and that's a kind of a, a that's one way to, to put it. But it's really protecting the company. It's tech to, protecting the company from users who would bypass the systems that they know need to be in place to protect their lives. I mean, it's a little bit different than the government saying, we're not going to let you go to this website because we need to protect you from yourself. We don't want that information getting into your head. This is different. This is our technology will kill you if you try to circumvent the protective measures. And when people figure out how to do it, GSS to protect the business needs to proactively find ways to reduce the ability to do that. I don't see it as being the same, but I totally get where you're coming from there. I just I think there's a distinct difference when you're talking about providing a tool that can kill a person. I have no problem with a company trying to protect themselves. If they want to say people dying from using the ONI is bad for business, so we want to make sure that doesn't happen. That's one thing. But when they start using language like we're trying to protect you from yourself, that starts to go into a territory that suggests, well, now I'm going to be the judge and the jury about what I'm protecting you from. It starts to get into a limitless territory. But they're protecting people from their things. Like it's not a government taking over another business and saying I'm protecting you from some other business, from some other from some other person's means of making money. It's I'm providing you something and I'm going to try to prevent you from using it wrong. It's my shit. I'm going to sell it to you but I want to prevent you from using it incorrectly because if you do, you die. I, I get it. And, and you know what? 
I see all the signs on, you know, I used to see all the signs out on the highway that says, don't text and drive. You know what I do sometimes when I drive? I look at my phone for half a second. We all do things that we're not supposed to do while we're using someone else's product. And there's some personal responsibility that I don't know, I expect. I think it's a good point. It kind of reminds me of the, the, I don't know if it was late 70s, early 80s, but it was an SNL episode where Dan Aykroyd is just kind of like this sleazy toy maker. And he's making these toys, and he's like, you know, hey, you know, I've got this lovely bear here. It's a beautiful bear. It's a bear. Kids can kids can crawl up to it, and they can fall asleep to it. And, you know, she's like, it's filled with broken glass. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, sometimes kids need to chew on something, right? So, you know, the back comes open, some glass comes out. It's pretty. It's glittery. They can kind of toss it around. It's an extra perk. The kids love it. <laughs> sometimes you need it. Sometimes you need to look out for the people because businesses will abuse people it's if you let them because it's in their best interest sometimes to do so there needs to be a balance i'm not for a nanny state either like i don't want somebody dictating how long i can be on the internet because if i'm on the internet longer than 12 hours a day guess what that's not going to kill me that kind of oversight is in my opinion wrong or preventing me from going to a website not the website preventing me from going to them but something like the government preventing me from going to a website. Hey, you know what? I can determine what information I want to see. And if that information's out there, I should be able to get to it. But it's a different story if I go to Facebook and Facebook's like, no, you cannot use our service anymore. You have been a bad person on our service. To use our service, you've got to play our games by our rules. If you do not play by our rules, then you don't get to use our service. That is that is capitalism. That is free market at the core. That is allowing business to determine how business will do business. And I'm okay with that. I do have a problem with a government turning Facebook off because they think I shouldn't use Facebook more than a few hours a day. That I'm absolutely against. And I like that this brought this out because I didn't think about this during the chapter, but I'm glad that it hit you in this way. Uh, so it, it concerns me that we've got Faisal here that is basically got a smile on, is totally not responding to the the barbs and the discussion. He gets his signature, you know, he gives them the numbers. He's well sunk in. He's high up in the company. He just seems like the school teacher dealing with a bunch of rotten children. Yeah, yeah. You know, I came in here, I got what I needed, and that's all I'm connected to this for. I've seen that attitude before. So it makes me feel like Faisal is going to be part of a darker plot. And maybe that's not the case. It makes me feel like part of the darker plot has to do with these updates of the technology and who's really controlling the technology. Because right now, it's not the high five. They're signing away advances to the technology without a whole lot of question at all. And Samantha's the only one that questions it. You could parallel this with almost any government because it's not like the executive that signs on the dotted line knows every single word in that legislation or they're depending upon their people that they've brought into their administration to make proper recommendations, to write things out in a way that accomplishes the goals and like yeah to execute the intent like an executive yeah. order is not nearly all the verbiage that's going to go into it, executing that order yeah it, it it really made the high five 
it presents them as mere figureheads. Like they're yeah. they have they do not have an ounce of brains to run this company. Yeah. They just have to sign the dotted line. Yeah. It's being operated from underneath them. And therein is where I feel like there might be some nefarious workings. That there might be uh, some means of backdooring that system maybe or getting into it in a way that's unknown. So there's another thing that stuck out that was a bit of a red flag. And that was in the description of how GSS took over IOI Mm. in the midst of that lawsuit, mind you, and that Sorrento was sent to jail. Was it a life sentence? It was a death sentence, wasn't it? After Halliday's contest, Sorrento had been convicted of 37 separate counts of first-degree homicide. He was now serving time on death row in a maximum security prison in Ohio, about 50 miles south of Columbus. So I I do want to pause here and because I think – because I love that – smiling, Aaron? Because I love that it's 37 counts of first-degree homicide. <laughs> That's why you're smiling. Yes. Go on. Think go it, on. I want to hear this. Okay. Okay. We know that Ernest Klein is a fan of Kevin Smith, right? I know where you're going with this. <laughs> thirty-seven. Thirty-seven. My girlfriend sucked thirty-seven dicks in a row. In a row. <laughs> this has to be a reference to Clerks. Got to be. Oh, that's a good catch. That's a great catch. That's why you're smiling. Okay, I guess that's reasonable. Every time 37 shows up somewhere, I'm thinking 37 dicks. <laughs> Maybe they're in a row. Maybe they're not. We'll never know. As long as they're not in a knot. <laughs> uh, do you remember the first... I want to say it was a it was a it was a jacket description where it says uh, you know an unexpected person comes back from the dead, mm-hmm. and here we have Nolan Sorrento on death row, Ooh. and it makes me wonder if as we advance either this is the last we hear of him and that could totally be the case. We just want to know what happened to Nolan Sorrento. He's as good as dead. That's all you need to know, mm-hmm. or, or. Is there something Nolan knew about this technology? Is he in the system? Does he have access to it? Could it be possible that a copy of Nolan's Sorrento comes back and with some insight into the back-end system of all of this, that he is able to compete for this thing? I don't know. I'm guessing at the moment. But when we had first talked about that coming back from the dead thing, we'd kind of speculated on Nolan Sorrento, if I remember rightly. We did. But we didn't know if he died. Like We kind of made some assumptions that maybe he was going to die or would get killed or something would happen. And that that kind of poked a hole in it. But here we have a very specific point that he's on death row. Yeah, I, I remember thinking, could it be that it's Sorrento? And then I, th- I'm pretty sure we said that we hope it's not. I have notes here from like when I was reading the chapter before I go to the next one. I wrote down for this chapter. I really hope this is the last we hear about Sorrento in this book. <laughs> uh huh. Because at the, you know, I, th- I think even at this point in the book, I was feeling like it didn't need to be him and would have felt hokey. Mm-hmm. 
And I think part of it was that because he had, at this point, we know he'd been on trial and then he's on death row, that's pretty final. You know what I mean? Right. Like, uh, so to me, at that point, it squashed any possibility of hearing of Sorrento again. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. I'm just saying this popped out as a red flag. I know you can't tell me or give me any hints as to what might happen. I do have one other note that relates to one of the things that you saw as a red flag. Mm-hmm. It specifically relates to the firmware update. I say firmware update, this is probably not going to be a Chekhov's gun. That's what you noted when you got to that point? When I got to this point in the book, I said, this seems way too upfront in your face. Right. Like, like you can't just say this and not mention it later, or this yeah. not be key in some way. Yeah. It's too important. Yeah. I like where you were going, and I think that's basically what you were trying to say here, is yeah. that there's something about these this firmware or these firmware updates that's important. So I had that note because it just seemed like it was just way too way too much in our faces. To, yeah, there's, to there's, not... it's almost like there's two layers of things going on. It's a little one ominous. Layer, yeah, one layer at the top is this whole relationship thing that Parzival's really concerned about and what he's really focused on. The layer just below that is a hint to the controls that are actually operating the systems and that the people above that, the high five, as you mentioned, are really just figureheads. They're just treated, it seems in this chapter, like children, like people whom they need to kowtow to, but who really don't have the power. Another thing I find interesting is that... What? What is so interesting, Chris? I guess we'll have to wait for part two of this chapter. Don't forget to subscribe to Get to the Good Part so your favorite podcast app will tell you when the new episode is released. See you then. Dick on the way through the parking lot.